Uh, we'll be doing the next message in the Build series this morning, so we'll be in a few places, but I want to invite you to first turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And we are in the middle of a series called uh, the Build Series. And so this title comes from Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus' response to Peter that on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so that's been our theme for the last three weeks. And we'll continue in that theme this week and see what it means. What does it mean for Jesus to build his church? And so, as we look at Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 this morning, we'll get to see how Jesus intends to do that. If you've been around our church or just church in general for some time, no doubt you're probably very familiar with this passage. Um, But it's important that we look at it afresh and uh, see what God is calling us to in this great commission passage. So, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. Actually, let's begin in 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning, that you would help us to see what you're calling us to as a church, the glorious, wonderful mission that you've given to all believers for all time through all ages to carry on the mission that you've given to us here in Matthew 28. Lord, we want to be faithful to that, and I pray that you would bless the preaching, help it to be clear um, and faithful to your word so that we're compelled and motivated by the things that, that compel you, that you are passionate about, Lord. Help us to realign our hearts towards those things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, in Lego Movie 2, <laughs> we are introduced to an interesting character called Queen Whatever Wanabi. And Queen Whatever whatever Wanabi is a shapeshifter. And so she can become like a dragon or a boombox or a snake or a lion. Or she she becomes a variety of things. And uh, and she basically is someone who's able to suit the situation and interests of those that she's trying to please. In the case of the movie and in that plot line, it's because she wants to marry Batman. And so Queen Whatever Wanabi is doing whatever she can to get... Batman to like her, and one of her lines is, I'm Queen Whatever Wanabi, I can change my form to something else if it makes you feel more comfortable, <laughs> and, uh, and she does, so she just constantly is morphing and changing to make those that she's seeking to please more comfortable, and so I thought that was an interesting image of, uh, that can set the table for us. I mean, is the church, when we think about the church's mission, is the church free to change its form to something else to make people more comfortable. Now, I trust your being here today in this church is a reflection of your answer to that question, that no, we are not free to change 
our form into whatever we want just to suit the interest of an evolving and changing culture and world around us. We should always be asking, okay, what, what does need to change? But we should be asking it in this way. What needs to change to make us more faithful to what the Bible is clearly calling us to? That's a question we never want to stop asking. What needs to change to make us more biblically faithful? But see, that's a totally different question than what needs to change to make us more likable or make us more attractive to the world. Or a temptation in our context might be, what needs to change to make us more attractional to other Christians? See, that's another temptation that we should fight as a church. That's not what we're called to, to be more attractional to other Christians. We're always evaluating how to do better. And believe me, we as a church, we are far from perfect. Uh, we, we have no shame singing songs like, as I ran my hellbound race. You know, we're, we're not a group that wants to pretend like we just got it all together. We were rebel sinners running from God who've been rescued and brought back to God. And we are so thankful that what an amazing mystery that that grace has come to me. We are far from perfect. And that's going to mean that Unmet expectations are going to happen. They're a painful reality of life in a fallen world, life in fallen churches. People get hurt. People leave churches. Leaders evaluate how we could have done better. Those are good questions to ask. But, you know, the, the demands and expectations of people are constantly pressing upon us. And we can be tempted to become a church that is queen whatever one I be to those that are demanding the most from us, to the squeakiest wheels, to be the queen whatever they want us to be kind of church, but that's not what we're called to be. That's why the, the title and subject of today's message is so important. What is our mission and why it matters? What is our mission? What is this church's mission? When we think of the church that our lives are connected to through membership, the church that we gather with every Sunday, what should that church be built upon? See, as a church, we can't afford to assume our mission or very quickly we'll neglect that mission in exchange for something else. And in fact, that neglect, that, that exchange is always a form of idolatry. Idolatry is just saying something else is going to deliver what only God can deliver. And so since God's not delivering, I'm going to exchange it for this because this is going to make me happy. This is going to fulfill me. This is the true and better thing that I believe is what I really need. That's the essence of idolatry in, in some sense. So as we look to the future and we think about our mission and our future together as a church, what will we be built upon? What alternatives vie for our attention what idols might threaten to derail us from the mission Jesus gives us here in Matthew 28? Lots of things do that when we really think about it. It might be a particular tradition or some uh, sacred cow that we have in our church that we've always done something a certain way. And so we don't want to change that. We've got we've to keep that going as if something that's not necessarily spelled out clearly in Scripture has now become something that is on par with scripture. See, tradition can actually threaten to undermine the authority and sufficiency of God's word. Praise God for good, healthy traditions that keep us faithful to God's word, but may we not elevate tradition to the place of biblical authority. There's lots of other things. Uh, we could idolize tradition. We can idolize 
family even. We can take good things like tradition or family and raise them to the level of ultimate importance. You don't have to be saved to say, well, for me, family is first, right? Unbelievers can say that. But at what point does that become idolatry actually? Where you see Jesus saying, anyone who's not forsaken these natural relationships to follow me can't even be really a true disciple. What does that mean? So see, there, there's a way to do it that's biblical and faithful, but there's a way to let the good thing become an ultimate thing. And once we've done that, we've moved into idolatry. The same thing can happen with personal burdens and callings. So you maybe, maybe feel burdened in a particular area that you want to be doing something and praise God, go for it, do it. But guard against that becoming an idol because anything that becomes, anything important that becomes ultimate can easily become a replacement for the ultimate thing that we're called to do as we see in Matthew 28. It might be the idolization of programs or entertainment, things like that. I mean, probably most Christians are not going to say, you know, the most important thing to me is the programs that a church has or the way the church entertains me. Nobody's going to say that. But we can think that by the way we form, with the way we allow expectations to be formed in our mind. And the way we know those expectations are there is the way we respond when those things don't deliver. Because idols ultimately never deliver on what they promise. And so we want to guard against idolizations of things that are not in line with what scripture actually calls us to. That could be good things or bad things. Thankfully, the church in this passage is, is given its mission. It's given its definition by Jesus. So when we talk about mission, I want to make a distinction between when you hear this maybe talked about in the business world. So I'm a small business owner. My business has a mission. We, we have something that we're after. But when we think of church, we don't approach it the same way. See, in the church, I, I like that Joshua pointed this out this morning. In the church, we're not called to say, you know, what, what corner of the market in the church world are we really good at? And let's capitalize on that. And that's our mission as a church. Guess what? The mission for the church is the same as it is for every gospel-centered, Bible-believing church throughout all ages around the world. We are called to make disciples. That's what Jesus says here. To be a disciple-making church is what we're called to do. There's nothing new and amazing and innovative and corner of the market-ish about that. Now, there are several ways we can say it, but fundamentally, this is what it's all about. These are the marching orders from Jesus to go and make disciples. And this command and mission shapes our vision for the future. So the way we say this, we, we do have a vision statement as a church. And the way we say it in the vision statement is our vision is to see communities of disciples multiplied and matured locally and globally through spirit-empowered mission and ministry for the glory of God. We'd love to unpack that. I think we're going to do a series later in, in the distant future, probably, on, on just that all of the statements that are in there, so many good things. Our main point today is this, that the church's mission is to multiply and mature disciples. In terms of why that matters, here's why. Because if we're not doing that, we'll be building upon some other foundation. And listen, Jesus doesn't promise that the gates of hell won't prevail against church whatever I want to be. 
The gates of hell will not prevail against, what does Jesus say? The rock-solid confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. That's what Peter said. And Jesus said, upon that rock, I will build my church. But listen, it's not just the ontological reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. That is part of it that he's building his church on. But he's also building his church upon all of the future Peters who will go out confessing that Jesus is the Christ. It's not just the fact that Jesus is the Christ that builds the church. It's the fact incarnated in people living it and expressing it and confessing it together. So he builds his church upon these twin things. I've shared with our leadership team, and I think growing up in a predominantly Catholic context, as an evangelical Christian, we reacted strongly against um, the Catholic view of Petrine succession, that Peter and the Pope and uh, that uh, the idea of a papacy comes back to Peter. And, and, but we can so say that, no, it's not Peter Jesus promises to build a church on. It's Peter's confession. True. But it's not just the confession. It's people making the confession. It's all the Peters that are going to come after Peter and make that confession. See, God intends for the message of the gospel to be embodied in lives and actual people living out that reality and it's against that, the, the twin truths of the confession and those making the confession that God intends to build his church. That's what being disciples and making disciples is all about. And we see that in this great commission. So I want to draw out a few points. Point number one, the biblical vision for making disciples is right here in verses 18 through 20. If you look at 18, Jesus begins with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So our mission flows from the authority of Jesus. All authority is mine. He is sovereign. And then out of that reality that he sovereignly rules and reigns over every single thing in the entire created order. Out of that idea of sovereignty, we are given our responsibility. Go. Again, it's another beautiful picture in the Bible where sovereignty and human responsibility are not in contrast. They're right next to each other. God is sovereign. He controls all things. Nothing happens outside of his knowledge and will and power. And in light of that, go. You have a responsibility. We go in the authority of Jesus. We go resting in the confidence that God is sovereign over all things. See, the sovereignty of God should never cause us to kick back and do nothing. The sovereignty of God in Jesus' mind is the reason why he can say, go and do and make and baptize and teach. It's anchored in sovereignty. Sovereignty doesn't cancel out responsibility. It empowers it. Because as we know that as we go, there's a sovereign God superintending all of our acts of disciple making and gospel proclaiming. Sovereignty compels us to go. The authority of Jesus governs and guides our going. Second, we make new disciples and mature existing ones. We see this in verse 19 through 20. As we go, we are making disciples. We're baptizing them. We're teaching them. There are really four verbs here. Go, make, baptize, teach. But in the Greek, uh, one of them stands out grammatically because it's actually in the imperative. The other three are participles. And participles can carry imperatival force. But only one of them is actually an imperative verb. And that is make disciples. It's one word in the Greek, make disciples. So that's the primary command that stands out over the other three and governs the other three. 
Now, has the Lord provided some mechanism by chance, by chance where all this can happen? Are individual Christians just left to themselves to figure it out? Or has he provided a place, a means, a mechanism, a method, a structure that brings all of this together? Well, sure, he has. It's the church. The local church is God's primary mission strategy. Kevin DeYoung says it well in his book, the, What is the Mission of the Church? He says, the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and gathering those disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. We believe this is the mission Jesus gave to his disciples prior to his ascension, the mission we see in the New Testament and the mission of the church today to win people to Christ and build them up in Christ. I like how he says that. Making disciples, that's our task, which DeYoung describes as winning people to Christ and building them up in Christ. It's good. Mature, multiply. We make new ones, we mature existing ones. That's the, the task given to the church. So you, you see this in verses 19 through 20 with these words, baptizing and teaching. So if the mission is singular, make disciples, you could say the strategy is twofold. We make disciples by getting new ones and maturing existing ones. Baptizing, that's symbolic of getting new ones. New believers come in, they're baptized. Remember we talked about this last week. They are, in baptism, they're expressing their, that their, their authority is Jesus and they are owned by Jesus. That's what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are submitting their lives under the authority and ownership of the triune God by being baptized in his name. Picture of conversion. But it's not just baptizing. It's not just getting people saved. It's teaching. In other words, it's maturing the existing disciples. Teaching them to obey, to observe all that I have commanded you. Where does this happen? What's the context? Well, it says in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So there's a global aspect to this. It's not just the people right next to us, but there's, there's this global dimension to what we are called to do. Now that's tougher to answer and that's a different message of, okay, what does that look like in my life right now? But it should be a category in our minds at the very least. And it happens locally as well. We know that this Great Commission is extended in the first chapter of Acts as they're called to go into Jeru Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So there's this ripple effect that begins locally but expands globally. Now, who's called to do this? Got good news for you. The role of the disciple-making person isn't the gift of just a special evangelist, a specially gifted and talented evangelist. Making disciples isn't a spectator sport. We're all called to the mission. And look, here's, here's where I really want to encourage us. It's not just a pastor that's called to do this. But we are all called to play a part in seeing Christ build his church. So what, can, what part can I play to help other believers grow? What part can I play to reach the lost? Those are just good questions. So if you go to discipleship group, you go to a men's Bible study, you get together with a group of ladies and you're going through a book together, you're reading a passage together, you're sharing your testimony, you're playing a part in helping other believers grow. 
You're getting on board with what God calls Christians to be doing, which is making disciples. And that mission is not just your mission as an individual, but that mission takes place in the context of a group of people he's joined you to. So you can help other believers grow. There's a variety of ways to do that. What part can I play to reach the lost? We'll, we'll get into that a little bit more later in the message. But we see that these are the task of maturing and making disciples. Letter C, as we go and do this, we can persevere because Jesus is with us. Look at the end of verse 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice the bookends of this command. It starts with all authority, Jesus says, is mine. And it ends with, and I'm with you to the end of the age. I mean, this daunting incredible task that he's given us, intimidating task that he's given us, is bookended by the twin truths that all authority belongs to Jesus and that he is with us as we go and get the job done. This should give us bold, risky, courageous faith to step out of our comfort zones, whether that be to just share the gospel with a coworker or to go on a short-term mission trip for the sake of advancing the kingdom globally. He is with us as we do these things. We can do this. And Jesus being with us isn't just for our own sake, just to help us, comfort us, get us through uh, a challenging thing. It's not just for that, but his being with you in these things is to help you grow, to change you, because he's with you to help others see that his power is at work in your weak life. So when we, when we say others, I, I'm including the person sitting on the other side of this room as well as the other person sitting on the other side of the world. Oh, may we realize that all authority belongs to Jesus and that he is with us as we follow him into his mission. As we seek to make disciples in whatever sphere of life that God's placed us in, he is with you. So think about it. I mean, just ministry of the local church. He's with you when you're greeting. He's with you when you're serving on the prayer team. He's with you when you're going to discipleship group or you're going to men's Bible study or when you're teaching a children's ministry class. He's with you. He's with you and he's with you in all authority. No matter how weak or ill-prepared you feel, he is with you in those moments because you're doing disciple-making work and he promises right here to be with those who go and make disciples. He's with you when you do these things. He's also with you in other disciple-making opportunities throughout the week, isn't he? He's with you when you're parenting. He's with you when you're sitting in meetings at work, trying to be faithful and work hard and to deal honestly and ethically in the role that God's given you. He's with you because those are expressions of his kingdom, expressions of God's work in your life, that you carry out your work in a way that is distinct from sinful motivations and worldly desires. He's with you as you seek to live faithfully in your job. He's with you when you're working through conflict with clients or coworkers. He's with you when you're applying for a new job. He's with you when you're changing your baby's diapers or walking with someone who just lost a loved one. Listen, there is no disciple-making work that you will ever do that the all-authority given Jesus is not with you. He is with you as you go to make disciples in his name. And these truths will guide and govern the hard work of making disciples. So we go. We make and mature disciples. We persevere in this glorious task, knowing that Jesus has all authority. And that he's with us every step of the way as we seek to be obedient to what he's calling us to. Point two, we have a great 
example of this. And an example comes in dis- maturing disciples. In other words, disciples who are in process, maturing, they're maturing. Uh, the example of maturing disciples. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. So we dipped into this last week, and I want to go into it a little bit more again this week. Ephesians chapter 3, I'm sorry, Ephesians 3, 8. Paul says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before, fa- before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Notice, I know it's a big section, but just notice how the gospel, the word, motivates Paul and thus should motivate all believers. Notice how he understood his personal mission, which we see in verse 8, to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles, that that personal mission was flowed, flows out of the grace that was given to him. See it in verse 8? To me, I'm the very least, this grace was given. Grace came into his life. You see it in verse 7 too. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. Out of what he's received, he, he gets his personal mission, which is to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles. So it seems that God used Peter to proclaim it to Jews and that God would use Paul to proclaim it to Gentiles. So there's a unique personal focus that God gives him. But he understood that his personal mission flowed from the grace that had come into his life and salvation. So his personal calling was understood in light of this bigger picture of what God has done and what God is doing, verse 10, was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So his, he understood his personal calling to Gentiles in light of this bigger picture of God's intention to build the church. And he wanted other people to get in on that. It, it didn't stop with him. And we want the same thing. We want other people 
to see that just like Paul, who considers himself less than the least of all the saints, was given the grace of God, that every saved person in this room is in that same position. We did not deserve the grace of God. Can, you know, can I sing, and as I ran my hellbound race, even though I grew up in church, and I don't have like a criminal record and all, all these horrible things that some of you probably have, and praise God that he saved you. But it doesn't matter what your record is, whether you, are, whether you are disqualified from salvation because of the sins you committed or disqualified from, your, from salvation because of the sin of thinking you were good enough and religious enough. Both of them are sins. Both of them are, require a savior. Both, of, both people are on a hellbound race apart from Jesus. The hellbound race can look religious or it can look criminal or it can be anything in between. But we all need grace. We all need the, the grace of the Savior to reach into our blind, deaf, self-confident, arrogant lives and rescue us and save us. And that's what we've been given. And we want other people to get in on that, don't we? We want other people to know the goodness of this. Whether, no matter what end of that spectrum you're on, you can come to Jesus too and receive grace and forgiveness. You might, that you would be able to say, like Paul says here, that this grace was given even to me. What an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. Oh, get you some of that. Come on. This is grace that is worth getting. There's nothing else better than this. And this is what motivated Paul. Now, what, what I want you to see and why I kept reading is from 3.14 all the way down to 4.3. Notice how that grace compels a, Paul to pray in a certain way for these Ephesian believers. He wants them to know. So, so now we're getting a peek into Paul's burden. He wants other believers to mature, to grow, to know the depth and goodness and benefit and sweetness of these things. He wants them to know it. And so it doesn't stop with him. He's not a cul-de-sac of God's grace. He's a through street for it. He wants God's grace to flow through him and get to others. And so we see that in 14 to 21. And as it arrives in other people's lives... We are exhorted in chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, to live in a certain way. In other words, when this happens and God's grace lands in our life, it calls us to live and act in a certain way towards one another in light of that. In, in what kind of way? Well, it says it there to, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So to summarize that, the manifold wisdom of God how does it get put on display in believers' lives? Well, according to this, at least one of the ways is in how they treat one another. See, the church's mission is not just doing evangelism, but it includes how we behave towards one another and towards outsiders. For Paul, when the gospel is informing our hearts, as it was for him in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 3, it actually changes how we treat one another. So there should be a growing demonstration of this message that we're proclaiming. Have you ever thought about this? That your personal growth as a Christian furthers the mission of God for his church. So you're not just being evangelistic when you share the gospel with someone. You are. And you must share the gospel with people. But your witness in the world also includes your growth in Christ. Again, we should avoid either or with this kind of thing. Your actions alone don't proclaim the gospel. But if you proclaim a gospel that is then contradicted or invalidated by what you do or how you treat others, 
you do, in fact, invalidate the message you proclaim. I'm not saying we need to feel perfect in order to share the gospel. We need to don't, don't share the gospel until you get your act together. Not saying that. I can be guilty of that. But really, in my pride, that's just an effort to, uh, to avoid uncomfortable gospel sharing opportunities. Well, I don't feel worthy enough. Well, I sinned against this person. I can't possibly share the gospel with and I'm, I'm disqualified. No, I am running and hiding. Jesus said, whoever seeks to preserve his life is going to lose it. I'm seeking to preserve my life when that happens. The kind of gospel sharing that we're called to is not this sense that we need to feel perfect before we can open our mouth and be evangelistic. I'm saying we should not shy away from admitting our own weakness and need for a savior as we share the gospel with others. I see, I think that level of honest confession of personal lack, of personal need is a witness to the gospel you're proclaiming. Paul doesn't shy away from it. I'm the very least, he says. He doesn't shy away from it. So your growth as a believer is actually how our mission advances. And what does God use to help you grow as a believer? Well, his word, right? He, he uses his word. Personally, as you're reading it, corporately, as you sit here, listening to it, being, being absorbing his truth as it's being proclaimed to you, these things are what God uses. That's why Jesus said, disciple-making includes teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And it's why Paul here calls these Ephesians churches, the, the Ephesian Christians, to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So just an application question. Do you prioritize growth as a disciple or do you just assume it will happen? You know, what, what can we do to prioritize our growth as disciples? What adjustments might God be calling me to make to prioritize growth as a disciple? Well, we talked last week how one of them is certainly the gathering of, of Sunday meetings, of coming together on Sundays and gathering. That is definitely a way we can prioritize our growth as a Christian, recognizing that my growth as a Christian is part of the mission. It's part of fulfilling what Jesus said about teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I've got to observe it. If I'm going to be able to do it, I need to be taught. I need to hear it. I need to hear these things over and over again because it just, we forget it so quickly. You may have heard the, I think it was Puritan pastor Richard Baxter who said, the best gift that I can give to my church is my personal holiness. To state it another way and the way I'm saying it here is that the best thing you can give to fill in the blank is to be a growing disciple of Jesus. That's the best thing you can give. It's another way to say holiness because after all, holiness involves growing as a disciple of Jesus. So let's just practically apply this for a minute. The best gift you can give to your family is to be growing as a disciple of Jesus. The best gift you can give to your work or your employer is to be growing as a disciple of Jesus. The best gift you can give to your neighborhood or to the nations is to be growing as a disciple of Jesus. Why? Because your personal growth as a disciple advances the mission to make and mature disciples by recruiting new ones and maturing existing ones, namely you. <laughs> so as we mature, we advance the mission. And so may we position ourselves to grow in holiness and prioritize our growth in the Lord and not just assume it's going to happen by osmosis by just doing certain things, but may we prioritize, okay, what, where is God calling me 
to prioritize my growth as a believer. Point number three, let's go to Acts chapter two, and we'll see the group of believers in the early church doing this exact thing. Point number three is a strategy for our mission to make and mature disciples. So I want to get practical here. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Love that picture. We see in the book of Acts how the early church right in that passage, how they reorganized their life around this great commission to make and mature disciples. There was biblical community. There was outreach. There was preaching. There was gathering together. There was people getting saved. Those are all things we want to be about as a church. How do we do that as a church? Well, we've tried to spell out our strategy as a church in just three summary statements. I have these in your notes. The way we seek to See communities of disciples made, multiplied, and matured through spirit-empowered mission and ministry locally and globally for the glory of God is by these three things. By encountering God together, by encouraging one another, and by engaging our world. Now, encountering God together, that's primarily Sunday. We encounter God together when we come together and sing and submit our hearts to the preaching of God's word. Jesus promised he is with us when two or three gather together. And he is. He is with us when we sing. He is with us when we preach. We talked about that. So we gather together with expectant hearts, as we just read in Ephesians, coming to a God who is eager to do more than we can ask or think or even imagine. And we come because we expect, we long to encounter the God of the universe in our corporate meetings. So that's a key strategy of how we make and mature disciples is we gather together to encounter God together. Second, we encourage one another. Now, at this stage in our life, and I think in, in any church's life, this is going to look different at different seasons and different, dependent on lots of different factors. Right now, the way we encourage one another is in all of the various small group contexts that we have available. So we have everything... We have lots going on. Discipleship group, two men's meetings, there's women's meetings that get together, there's youth ministry. We're going to be starting a couple of new things in the summer. We're trying to create context as a church where believers can get around one another outside of this meeting. So as important as this is, we need that other piece as well because that's part of our strategy. How can we create contexts where encouraging one another can take place? This is expressed through membership, through church involvement, through serving in different areas. So we encounter God together. We encourage one another. Thirdly, by engaging our world. So how will we make and mature disciples? We'll encounter God together, create context for that to happen. Encourage one another, create context for that to happen. Engage our world, create context for that and happen. I like this part because this is the part where what we're talking about is what you might call Monday through Saturday. Um, so some of the other things are, you know, when we get together as a church, but engaging our world, so much of that is as we're scattered about. So yeah, God gathers us together in, in community, in a gathering like this one, but really, we, don't we spend most of our time being scattered about around Midland, Odessa, around West Texas? 
This is our opportunity where God has called us to be salt and light. What is our evangelism program for this church? You may have heard me say this if you've been here a while. We have 100 people who, after this meeting, are going to go scatter all about this area and do missions work. We're going to be doing missions work from Monday through Saturday this week, by the way. And we'll have 120 different things going on. I mean, we, we should think of our role in the mundane of life as being sent by Jesus to go and make disciples. We are sent people. And so that's the way we engage our world is in the everyday Monday through Saturday of what this looks like. Now, this is where it gets really flavorful. I like this, this aspect of it because how we do this, how we engage our world is going to get played out differently for different individuals. It's, and the way it gets played out for you individually is not automatically the way it must get played out corporately. So I want to offer some caveats here. We gather together on Sundays to submit ourselves to God's word that we might be challenged to grow and change, that we might be encouraged, that we might meet with the living God and worship him and celebrate the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But God gives different burdens and passions to different individuals and those get carried out throughout the week. That means how we do disciple making, it's going to get played out differently because God just gifts people differently. He burdens people differently. He positions you differently than other people in the room. Many of you have access to groups and people groups that others of us don't ever have access to. That's not by accident. Do you think God may have designed that so that you could reach that particular group? So here's where we need to be careful. Remember the analogy in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul says, we are all members of one body, but we're all made up of different parts. And so he argues that the eye shouldn't expect every other part of the body to be an eye too. Well, what's the point? We can't expect the whole body to be doing something one body part is called to do. Okay, so just think about that for a moment. So let's say someone has a burden for homeless people, or rich people, or disabled people, or imprisoned people. Great. God may, in fact, be calling you to go and do those ministries, and you should do those with all your heart. And just recognize that that shouldn't lead you to conclude that because you have that burden, that the church should now create a program for this ministry, and that if it doesn't, the church isn't really being the church. So there's a lot of that kind of talk in the Christian world out there. And we should guard against that. The church's mission is to make disciples. That at least includes helping you grow so that you can do what God's calling you to do as an expression of an extension of the mission he's given you in your local church. But that doesn't mean that the church needs to be doing anything and everything programmatically that God might be calling an individual Christian to be doing. So that's an important distinction. By all means, God has gifted and given people burdens and desires that you should run with. Um, but again, the, what is the church's mission as an institution? It's broader than one specific thing is the point. So our guiding principle must always be that we exist to make disciples. This is what was happening in Acts. Make disciples. Lost are getting saved. The saved are getting matured. That's, that's the mission. That's what we're called to be doing. Why? Why does this matter? So Hebrews 3, 13. We've looked at this many times over the last several months. It says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
That should be such a sobering passage of why we want to be doing these things. Because the reality is, sin has a hardening effect. And it's deceitful. In other words, the hardening effect that sin has is often imperceptible to the one that it's hardening. And that's where we need the eyes of other folks to help us see what we're not seeing. To help us regain perspective where we've lost perspective because of our own pains and hurts and disappointments and unmet expectations. Sin has a hardening effect and it has a deceiving effect. And God gives us community to help us avoid that effect. So Hebrews 3.13, so exhort one another. Be in each other's lives in such a way that we can offer this exhortation to each other. So again, to give it a, a practical question that we can be asking, what can we do to make sure that we're growing and not being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? So just ask yourself that question. Have you positioned your life for growth as a disciple? There's such good news and, and such wonderful things in all these passages that we've read. God is calling us to this mission together. So again, it's not just you've got to figure it out. But he's calling us to do this, to walk in this, to grow in this together as a church. What, what part might he be calling you to play? Don't forget Jesus' promise in it all that he has all authority. And he's with you to the very end. There's so many wonderful ways that this is already happening in our body. I love hearing different, different expressions of God's love and care pouring out into our community around here. And um, whether that's through various types of mercy ministries or caring for people that are in need in other ways with health issues, with food, with financial provision, uh, with visiting them when they're sick and in the hospital, with all kinds of different things. God, using various of ones of you in your workplace, in your witness, as you, you try to reach out to coworkers, as you try to reach out to family members, and it's hard, and, but God's using you somehow, and you don't know why or how. And Man, just be encouraged. That's because Jesus is with you. That's because he's given you this mission, and he promises that as you go about doing this, he is with you to the very end. We can be encouraged that this thing he's calling us to, though it's difficult, though it's intimidating, though it may seem like what difference could I possibly make, Jesus is with us. And he will accomplish more than we could ever accomplish on our own and take our feeble, weak efforts and make something glorious out of them that actually leaves him with all the credit and leaves us going, God, you're amazing. What an amazing mystery you are. And that's what we want to see. That's our mission, to see disciples made and matured to the glory of God. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. And Josh would, Joshua would love you to come and close us in a song, brother. Lord, we thank you for this mission. Thank you for what you've called us to, Lord. We want to be faithful biblically. We don't want to neglect we don't want to ease back into just comfortable modes of repetition where we're not, we just easily lose sight. Oh, I, I just confess, God, it's easy for me to lose sight. We don't want to be people that lose sight of what you're calling us to. 
So we ask you to empower us, to envision us for the mission you've given us as a church and help us to be faithful to fulfill it. In Jesus' name, amen.